Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Mark, and I'm happy and privileged to be able to share with you guys and, and uh, just to be a part of this family. I, I uh, was challenged last week when Chris mentioned, you know, that we take it for granted, and I thought, you know, it, it, really, is, it really is true. Sometimes you're so used to a good thing that you forget how good it is, and uh, again, Really, really grateful to be part of this family. So thank you for uh, allowing me to do life with you and for doing life with me and uh, for being here this morning. And uh, last week I wasn't speaking, so I'm a little rusty. We'll shake that off hopefully pretty quickly. But um, we are in a series. If you, uh, if you haven't been here in a while, we're actually in part 13 of a series. So if you haven't heard any of them, you've been away a long time. Uh, and you've actually been away since Christmas. And maybe it's like, oh, well, it's getting close to Easter, so you're coming back again. Uh, and we're glad that you're here. Um, but uh, for those who been tracking with us. We've been doing a, a, a just a, a, taking a look at the life of Jesus from, from cradle to the cross, basically from the time of Christmas with his birth, uh, looking at what the, um, from, from, from his birth to, uh, to Easter, just watching the life of Jesus as, as he uh, did ministry for three years as an adult. And um, we've been challenged to ask ourselves this question in, in light of a culture that has all kinds of definitions for the word Christian. Do we, are we actually following Jesus? When, when it comes to the thought of his will versus mine, am I actually following him? Or have I just kind of bought into this idea of, oh no, Christian is good enough. If I attend church or whatever, that's, that's good enough. And we found that uh, a lot of times those, those things that we think are just okay get challenged. Uh, and uh, the, the challenge for us is to say, well, what, what will I do in that moment? Will I, will I choose to follow and so we said, let's take a look at what it looked like to follow Jesus, you know, in the first century when people were actually following him around. And the good news for us is that they wrote it down. The eyewitnesses, people who were there, they wrote down what they saw. They wrote down what they heard. And uh, it's been translated into our language, which is phenomenal. It cost the lives of many men uh, for that to happen throughout history. And uh, I'm just grateful that it is. One thing we said at the very beginning is that Jesus came to start something brand new. He did not come to start another religion. So if Christianity is a religion to you, then you've sort of missed the point because he came to start something brand new, something powerful. And we're going to, we started with that and we're going to tie that back in as we go through the final couple of weeks up till Easter. Uh, and so before, before we get into to the, too far in, um, have you ever been offered like a really great deal? Like, it just sounds so great, it almost sounds like it's too good to be true. There's like, there's got to be a catch. You know, they're like, there's things where they use the words like unconditional. You know, there's, there's no conditions on this sale of a house or whatever, and, and then all of a sudden you find out there was some catch. Or unlimited, you know, it's unlimited kilometers unless you go over 200, right? It's like these things that you're just, you, you wonder. Or maybe, you know, maybe you had like um, uh, things where somebody says, oh, you can double your money. Or, or, yeah, free lip piercing, right? Um, the, like where you can double your money and then afterwards you found out they doubled theirs and you lost yours. You know, or they phone, you get a phone call, you want a free trip, a free cruise. All you got to do is pay $5,000 for the luggage that we're selling and you get a free trip. Or maybe you were on that website and you found that guy, he's described as tall, dark, and handsome. And then you met him and he was tall and when it was dark, he was handsome. Uh, but it was just not what you thought it was going to be. You know, the fine print was like, we, we even have that saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it probably is. See, we're kind of pre-wired that if you think, ah, oh, it's too good to be true, it probably is. 
I want you to remember that as we take a, take a look. As we jump back into to where we have been following Jesus, he's been traveling all over uh, this, this place called Israel for the past three years. He's doing miracles, but not, not just miracles. They were actually signs that were pointing, showing the, the people of Israel, hey, these are signs that are saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one, the one you've been waiting for. Uh, but most of the people didn't see Jesus that way. Uh, when they were there and they, they heard about Jesus, see, we, we read about it after the fact, but when they were living in the moment, they thought more of Jesus as more like William Wallace, right? He was like, these rumors were going around about this man who was doing incredible things. He's seven feet tall. He shoots fireballs from his eyes. And, you know, the, this, 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 this person who was bigger than anybody that they had ever heard of and he was rising up and he could draw the crowds and if he could draw the crowds maybe he could stir up the crowds and lead them uh, into the a military conquest and take over Rome you know when he fed the 5,000 they thought well there's 5,000 men of us here let's make him our king by force let's make him our leader he'll take us to Jerusalem and we'll conquer and, and since in that moment that Jesus just sort of slipped away he wasn't going to let them make him uh, into, this, into this king that they all wanted or thought that he was going to be. It's not why he came. The first month of the Jewish calendar is where we kind of find ourselves at this point. It was the annual celebration of Passover was happening. It was just a week away. Jesus and his disciples and many people in Israel would travel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would become like 10 times the size at that point where thousands and thousands and thousands of people would go to Jerusalem to celebrate this one festival, this week-long festival. And so Jesus and the disciples are there. They've been there the previous couple of years. This is their third year traveling there together. And as they get close to the city, it's like the people, the, all of a sudden the rumors that have been about this man named Jesus... They, they begin, people begin to, to notice and realize, hey, wait, that's him. You know, he's, not, he's not seven feet tall, but that, that's the guy. I'm sure of it. That's Jesus. And the crowd begins to, to uh, gather around, and they, they get Jesus, and, and, and he, he, he's on a donkey as he's riding into Jerusalem. And they see him coming, and they start, they start shouting the words. You remember you know the word for Palm Sunday? They shout, Hosanna. Hosanna. Uh, Hosanna is not like a praise word. It's not like, you know, we're singing songs to this man. It was the word means save us. Oh, save. So they're like, save us, save us, save us, save us, as he's riding into the city. And then they begin putting down their palm branches and they take off their coats, which a lot of times for, for most people back then, their coat was kind of like their identity. It described who they were, what, uh, what rank they had, and they would take their coats and they lay them down on the ground in front of Jesus, basically saying to him, we are with you. We give you us. If you're going to go save us, we're with you. It's you and us. And thousands and thousands of people are cheering, save us, save us. And then what do they start singing? They start singing the old hymn, the old hymn, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This isn't just an idea anymore. It's becoming political. They're like, blessed is the king who comes in the name or in the authority of the Lord. He said, that's, that's the idea um, that, they're, that they're shouting. They're, they're thinking, man, it's perfect timing. Passover is a time when we, when we celebrate freedom. And we're not free yet because we're stuck under Roman rule, but we can almost taste it because he's here. Save us, save us, save us. And they assumed the timing was all perfect. Here's the man. Here's the, the day. It's Passover time. Uh, that God was going to do something great for their nation yet again. And yet Jesus, he said, you know, the assumption that I came to do something for the nation of Israel, it's not what I came. I came to do something, something for someone else. It's not the nation of Israel that I came. I came for the whole world. I came for you and you and you and you and me. That's why he came. The four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
They all actually write about what happened next. Uh, we're just going to take a look at Luke's account. Luke's the one who says, I want to write like the facts of, of what the eyewitnesses saw, and I want to kind of put it chronologically so you can follow along. And here's what he said. So if you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 22. I'll give you a second to find it. If it's on paper or on uh, a device, it's fine. But I'd love for you to track along with me. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. It says this, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived, which is this festival they call Passover. And it says this, it's when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal. Go and prepare the Passover meal. It wasn't just lunch. It wasn't like, hey, guys, go, you know, go make some ham and cheese sandwiches because we're about to, uh, uh, I guess I wouldn't have had ham. Uh, go make some cheese sandwiches. We're, gonna, we're going to uh, we're gonna have lunch together. It wasn't like, it, they, they didn't have like, like big preparations for normal meals. This was a special meal. And he says, go and prepare this uh, Passover so we can eat it together. And so that's what they did. They went into town. They found a room where it was kind of away from where everybody else would be. They could, Jesus could spend some time with his disciples away from the crowds. And it says in verse 14, when the time came, which would have been that evening, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And verse 15, Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover uh, meal with you before my suffering begins. It actually uses the word eager, eager. I've been eager, eager to eat this meal with you. And they're like, okay, you're eager uh, to eat Passover. Well, I mean, we're excited about Passover too, but he's like, but there was something more to what he was saying. I'm like extremely eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. And their suffering begins, just goes right past them. He says in verse 16, he says, because I'm telling you, I'm not going to eat this meal. I'm not going to eat this Passover meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And they would have looked at that and thought, what, what do you mean its meaning is fulfilled? Peter looks over at James like, well, what's, what's he saying? And John's like, I don't know. Jesus, its meaning is fulfilled. Like, what do you mean? Why are, why are you saying that we're going to eat this meal? You're not going to eat it until, it's, until it happens. It already happened. That's why we're eating this meal. And Jesus then, verse 17 says, he took a cup of wine. He gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Because I'm not going to drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. And they probably, they probably wondered, but there was, no, there was no explanation at that point. Then in Luke 22, verse 19, he says this, Then Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces. You just picture, during the meal, all of a sudden he thanks God for some bread, and he breaks it in pieces, and he gives it to the disciples, and he hands it to them. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body, broken for you. Broken for you. Um, do this to remember. And we read it and we just think, oh, okay, do this to remember. And we right away know where that's going to go. But they would have sat there, you know, at the table. He's handing out the bread and like, here's the bread. Do this in remembrance. Do this to remember. And like, Jesus, you don't even have to say anymore. We know what we're remembering. It's why we're here. It's why we're having the Passover meal. They were fully aware of why they were there. But you might not be aware of why they were there. Just picture yourself. You're the 13th disciple. You know, you're sitting there at the, at the uh, table with the rest of the guys, and Jesus is saying, hey, here you go, do this to remember. And you're like, remember, remember, remember what? And Peter looks over at you like, what? What do you mean you don't, rem you don't know? Oh, well, man, let me tell you. He says, you know why we're here? He says, my great, 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 great times infinity great grandpappy, back in the day, his great grandpappy, they, they were in this place called Egypt. He says, and Egypt was not a good place. He says, they, they were in Egypt, and they were enslaved in Egypt. They thought that God had forgotten about them. They thought that God had forgotten that he had a promise with them. 
He says, they, they would tell us they were making bricks in the hot sun. Can you picture it? It was just burning hot, and they, they were working so hard every single day. Can you hear the snap of the whip as the masters would yell out, more, more, more? Can you hear their screams as they're trying to do their best, and yet it's never enough? You know, Moses told us back then that, that the, the torture of this slavery was so much that even when he came and said, God has spoken, they're like, we don't believe it. We don't believe God's spoken. You know, 400 years is a long time. 400 years is a long time. But then, then there was this night. There was a night that was unlike any of the other nights. It's amazing. Moses came and told the people, God has spoken to me. And you know, my, my great, 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 great grandparents, they thought, maybe, maybe God has really spoken to Moses because we just saw some crazy stuff happen. It was like, God was showing that he was more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. We thought the Egyptian gods must be the most powerful because we've been praying and our God hasn't been able to, rec- to, to, to um, rescue us from, from Egypt and from slavery. Their gods must be stronger. You know, they worshiped the Nile God, but then, then our God came to the rescue. He says he turned their Nile God into just into blood. They worshiped frogs, so he just said, have at it, and sent billions of frogs into their castles and everywhere. He says he just, time after time, nine different times, he just proved that he was stronger. And then he came and said, God has spoken to us. We hadn't seen it fully yet, but we, we're about to believe that that, that was possible. And then, Mo, then Moses came and told us, he said, this is what God has said. He said, every one of you go and take a lamb. Go get a lamb. And then there wasn't just any lamb. There was something specific about this lamb. It had to be a year old. It had to be perfect. And we had to take that lamb into our house for four days. And as we got really connected to this little perfect lamb, all of a sudden Moses said, now it's time to kill it. But we just named it. He says, now it's time to kill this little lamb. And he says, you know, he asked us to do something weird. He, he, he told our grandparents, put blood from the lamb on the doorpost and put it on the top post. And so... so We did, not fully knowing what would happen. But that night, that night, death came to every single house in Egypt. Death came to every house in Egypt, but but not ours. Not ours. It's like death and judgment passed over our houses. It passed right over our houses. None of of our people died. God did something for his people that night. And, and, And just a few hours later, our whole families got up and they walked right out of slavery. 400 years was no more. God did something great for our nation. And that's why we're eating this Passover meal. And actually we're doing it because God actually told us Three times that we were supposed to keep this. And they, you know, Peter probably memorized this as he says to him. It's in Exodus 12, 17. There was no 12, 17, but it was in, in the book of Exodus. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. This is what God told us. Why? Because it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. This festival, this meal that you're celebrating will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this day from generation to generation. And so they told their children and they told their children. And when your children ask, why are we eating this meal? You tell them it's because we were set free from Egypt. Jesus, we've caught them up to speed. We remember, we remember why, you know, why we're celebrating this. But what were you saying? You said something about do this in remembrance. And then Jesus does something that should have made every single one of them walk out of the room. He says to them, do this in remembrance of me. I can just maybe picture, you know, them looking around like, what? That, you know, nervous looks to one another. Did, did he just say what I thought he said? Do this in remembrance of me? 
I think that's probably what he said. John, John, you ask him. And John's like, I'm not asking him. Moses told us we're supposed to do this in remembrance of freedom from Egypt. Not only Moses, God. God told, Mo, God told us. We're supposed to do this in remembrance. He can't change the meaning of Passover. We don't really think about that, but just picture, you know, my birthday's July 2nd, but let's just say that from now on, we're going to celebrate my birthday on July 1st. And um, anybody know what holiday we celebrate on July 1st? Canada Day, but that's old, okay? From now on, uh, this year, we're changing it to Mark Day. Okay, so we are going to celebrate the greatness that I have brought to Canada uh, for Mark Day. So we are going to start out the morning by waking up, having a day off work. Then we're going to go and watch the Mark Day parade where there will be all kinds of, you know, pictures of me throughout my childhood all the way up till now uh, and how the hairstyles and everything. And then we're all going to wear purple because that's my favorite color. No more red. We're going to celebrate with the parade. And at the end of the evening, we're going to go for a barbecue on the beach. And then we're going to have fireworks to honor Mark. How many of you are in? While the Saturday night crew is, uh, some of you are just so not patriotic. I cannot believe you would seriously allow me to change our national holiday. Forget the freedom. Forget the people who fought for our freedom. Now we'll celebrate this guy. That's what that was like, though. Is they're sitting there like, Jesus, you, you know, the triumphal entry was pretty cool, but I think it went to your head. You know, like all those people cheering for you, and now you think it's, it's, it's all about you. You're going to change Passover to be about you. You cannot, you can't do that. But he wasn't finished. He was actually just beginning. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says this, after supper. So he let them sort of sit and think about that for the whole meal. He's changing the meaning of Passover. This is after supper. It says he took another cup of wine and said, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. The new covenant between God and his people. See, we've heard it before, but I don't know if we ever really think about those words. A new covenant. They were pretty familiar with those words. Uh, Maybe more familiar than you might be. You know, the covenants were pretty common in ancient times. Uh, When's the last time any of you cut a covenant? Not, not really sure if you've maybe, if, you know, have I ever cut a covenant? It's where we get the term, you know, you cut a deal. But back in the day, there was, there was covenants. It's what they did. It was their forms of agreement, but they were much different than what we have. We kind of have contracts and things, but theirs were, theirs were different. And so I just want to tell you about a few of them uh, there that they, that they had, a few different types of covenants. There's not a test, but there's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So they would have covenants where people from different nations or different groups would um, make these treaties. For one, that was called the Bilateral Parity Covenant or Bilateral Parity Treaty. It was two equal people who would get together and say, we're going to make a commitment to one another. We're going to make a promise to one another. For some, it'd be like a business contract. For instance, you know, I'm saying to Caleb Weaver, Caleb, I'd like you to come do the framing on my house. He's like, okay, we're going to sign a contract. I sign my name. He does the work, then I pay. That's kind of how that works. And it shouldn't be, shouldn't be broken, but it would be equal people, two people of equals who would get together to make this type of deal. You see it in the Bible with the story of David and Jonathan. They made this kind of um, covenant pact with one another. Then there's the bilateral suzerain treaty, which is the type where it's, it's not two equals. It's where a king, uh, let's say a king and, and the vassal, they make a covenant agreement where the king decides all the rules and this guy gets to do all the rules. Just for your sake, Andy shared it this way in his series. It's, it would be um, like curfew. So the parent sets the curfew. Son, you've got my vehicle. 
You know, you can go out and drive, but you've got to be back by 10 p.m. sharp. If you're not back by 10 p.m., every minute you're late, I'm taking away 10 minutes of screen time, or you don't get to drive my vehicle next time, or whatever it is. They make all the rules. And as the child, you're like, okay, Dad, thank you. I'll try and keep all the rules, and I'll try and keep my end of the deal. That's what the suzerainty covenant was like. And it would have been, this would have been like the one, the covenant that, that God had with the nation of Israel. He would said, here's the laws. Here's all the laws. I'm giving you all the laws. If you keep the law, and if you do the right thing, you're going to be blessed. If you don't keep the law, it's not going to go good for you. And many people think that's the way God treats people today. Oh, if I'm really good and behaved, then God's going to come through for me. Oh, if I go to church at least twice, you know, a month, maybe he's going to answer my prayers. And oh man, I did some bad stuff. You know, please don't judge me. I'll go to church. I'll do something. That was the type of covenant that he had with the, the children of Israel. And it's interesting to note that the children of Israel, they kept the covenant sometimes, and then the, sometimes they didn't. They were blessed and they were cursed, and sometimes they actually had to spend 70 years you know, in, in slavery until they finally you know, were getting it. But God, through the whole thing, remained faithful to this promise. They remained this agreement that he had, you will be my people. And then there's a third one, the promissory covenant or the royal grant covenant. This covenant is where one person says, I'm going to take, make all the promises on behalf of the other person. The other person doesn't have to make any promises to me. I'm going to make them all for them. And if you think about it in our culture, it'd be like adoption, where a person says, you know what, we're going to adopt this child. We're going to give them a home. We're going to feed them. We're going to do everything for them. We'll sign our name on the contract line for them. But the child doesn't have to do anything. They just simply have to receive the, the benefit of that agreement, of that of that uh, covenant. And Noah's type of covenant God made with Noah. Noah, this has nothing to do with you, but I promise you that I will never flood the whole earth again. It doesn't matter what you do. It's never going to happen again. That kind of promise. And these people would make these type of covenant deals uh, with, you know, in all the nations. And they would often pray to God or to their gods and say, you know, would you bless? We ask you to bless our covenant. But then it was a really big deal when God himself would ask somebody, hey, can I be in a covenant agreement with you? God and people in an agreement with one another. It didn't happen very often. You know, the, the, the Jewish people would have known that it happened with, with Adam and it happened with Noah and it happened with Abraham, Moses, and David. That's it. Five. So when Jesus is like, there's a new covenant between God and his people, that was a big deal. It was a big deal. They knew there was a new covenant coming because Jeremiah had prophesied it. Jeremiah, verse 31, 650 years earlier, he had said this, the day's coming, says the Lord, but I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And it's not going to be like the covenant I had with them, you know, back in the days when they left Egypt. They broke that covenant. I'm not having one like that. It's going to be different. I'm going to put my law in their hearts. They don't have to memorize laws anymore. I'm going to put it in their hearts. It's not like they're going to have to come to the priest. I'm going to know them and they're going to know me. And Jesus said, this cup's the new covenant in my blood. It's a new deal, fellas. And they're sitting there like, well, we knew Jeremiah was a, predicted there would be a new covenant. But tonight, it happens tonight. And it's new. He used this word new, which means it's like unheard of, uh, fresh, something that had unprecedented, uncommon. He says this after supper. He took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the, uh, is the new covenant between God and his people. It's an agreement confirmed with my blood. They may have wondered, you know, what kind of covenant is this going to be? Because we know there's other covenants, but what kind is this going to be? See, most ancient covenants weren't, weren't um, made official by somebody signing a paper. It was real expensive to do that. They did something different. They did something that was much, much more um, powerfully reminding than just signing a piece of paper. They would take an animal... They would take an animal and they would cut it in half from neck down. 
And they would lay the two parts of the animal side by side. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? Your neighbor's cats are thankful. You know, they, they, we don't do this anymore. But they said this is what they would do. They would cut them in half, and then they would walk between the animals. And the two, two people would say to each other, face to face, I make this promise to you. And the other would say, I make this promise to you. And then they'd walk around through the blood. And then they'd come back and say, I make this promise to you. And I make this promise to you. And they'd walk around through the blood. And then at the end of it, they would say, and if I fail to keep my end of the deal, may it be to me as to this unfortunate animal. May that happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. This is a lifelong deal till death do us part. Rather than till inconvenience do us part or whatever it may be. It was this thing of saying, that, you know what, it's that type of a deal. We're not used to those type of deals anymore in our culture. And yet that's what Jesus was saying. This is a blood covenant. This one doesn't end. This isn't gonna, this isn't gonna happen. But they are hearing the words blood. Jesus, what do you mean? You're, you're gonna die? What, you're, what do you mean you're, it's gonna be your blood? You're, you're the king. You just rode in. You're gonna conquer. What do you mean you're gonna die? The rest of the verse says, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. It's an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Matthew says it'll be poured out as a sacrifice for you or to forgive the sins of many. And they're sitting there and it's going so fast, they don't realize that they're like, what do you mean a sacrifice for sins? That's what the temple's for, Jesus. We already have a sacrifice for sins. Like, but maybe they, maybe they would have remembered you know, had it not been going so fast that John or that Jesus had actually said, fellas, someone greater than the temple's here. Yes, it's always been about the temple till now, but someone greater. It's not about relationship with a building and services. It's going to be relationship with a someone, a person. Or maybe they'd have remembered the words of John the Baptist from, from week one. Week one. This was three years ago for them, 13 weeks ago for you. How many of you remember what John said on the shores of the Jordan River when he pointed to Jesus? He said, oh, phew, I'm glad somebody got that. <laughs> look, look, unless you were reading it. No, sweet, look. He said, what did he say? He said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how Jesus was introduced on the scene. Look, there's the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God provided. He's going to take away the sins of the world. They weren't thinking about that. And all of a sudden, it's all Jesus is bringing that all together, saying, listen, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is not the conquering person who's going to set Israel free from Rome. It's bigger than that. Jesus was basically saying to them, take this cup. This cup's the new covenant. I'm making this covenant. I'm making a covenant on your behalf, a blood covenant. The two parties involved are God and you. I'm representing God because I'm the son of God. And he says, but I'm also representing you as the son of man. I'm taking your spot in this covenant. I'm also going to shed my blood to ratify this covenant. It will be all about me. It will be all on me. This isn't like two equals, and if, if you break it, you know, you're dead. Or that from the, from the king down to the, to the pawn, if you break it, then you're dead. He's like, it's between me, it's on me, and it's for you. I'm taking all of the responsibility on me. And in this new covenant, it's going to... It's going to begin in just a few hours. Well, Judas didn't like the sound of this new covenant. And so he went and betrayed Jesus. He went to the, to the Jewish leaders and he said, listen, I'll tell you where he is when the crowd's not around. That's the thing. They could never get Jesus because the crowd was there. He says, but I'll tell you where he's going to be when he's by himself. And he thought, you know what? Jesus is never going to allow himself to be arrested. What are you talking about dying? He's not going to die. He's going to actually 
overthrow this kingdom. And if he won't do it, then I'll make him do it. I will make this, this conflict happen. And he, th- he didn't realize that the religious leaders would actually team up with their enemy, Rome, and crucify his friend, Jesus. And the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of religion and the kingdom of Rome, the kingdoms of the world thought that for a moment that they had won. It's like the words of the song we sang this morning. The words of the song, our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoices though heaven had lost. <laughs> they had no idea that he had come to ratify and start a brand new covenant, a final covenant, an unconditional covenant, an unlimited covenant. And the disciples probably would have thought, because they knew in covenants, wait, what's my part? What part do I play? You know, how do I keep my end of the deal? And you might be thinking the same thing in a relationship with God. What do I do? What's my part? And Jesus said, you couldn't keep your part, so I did it for you. I did it for you. Will there be terms and conditions like in all the other covenants? Yeah, but they're not like those ones. Those ones were memorized 613 rules. Those ones were kill a lamb every year for your sins. He says, it's way different than that. I'm going to have one commandment, and I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb, sacrifice once for all. That you can be forgiven, that the sin of the world can be forgiven, that my sin and your sin can be forgiven. And for some, it's like, well, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds too good to be true. That God could do everything in order to forgive all of my sin. See, maybe we haven't heard it that way too often. There's a guy named Ernest Hemingway as we kind of wrap it up. Maybe I can get the the ushers, if you guys can get the communion emblems ready. If you guys can grab the communion emblems, you can start serving. That would be great. Or actually just hold them at the back. We can serve them in a second. Ernest Hemingway, he, uh, in the 30s, he wrote a story. He was writing a a book, and uh, he started it off with a story of this this guy, uh, father who was living in in Spain, and his son Paco and him had had a falling out, and Paco ran away. And for five years, he didn't hear a word from his son. And they had been really angry at each other. Hurtful words were spoken. But he got to this point where he's like, I just want to see my son. He didn't even know how he would ever find his son again. And so he put an ad in the local paper, in the paper of Madrid, that said, you know, it just said simply these words. Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Friday. All is forgiven. I love you. Papa, just wait. He said, Papa. And so on Friday, the father goes to that place. He goes to the hotel hoping that he's going to find his son there. And when he gets there, he's completely surprised because he finds his son, but he also finds 800 other Pacos there waiting and hoping that they would have restitution and forgiveness from their fathers. You know, he says that humorous story just shows a little bit about us, that there's a Paco inside of every one of us, that every person has this thought that I want you know, I, I want to be forgiven. Whether people believe in God or not, they believe that they're, that they're, they're, they're not right inside and hope that it could be true. And those disciples would have said, maybe, maybe we've, we're sitting there, we would ask them, is it really true that we could truly be forgiven? That it's, not, that it's all on him and not on us? John, tell us. And John would be like, I was an eyewitness at the dinner. I heard what Jesus said. I didn't understand it then, but then I watched him being crucified. And I watched the Lamb of God crucified for the sin of the world. I watched him rise from the grave. I watched him start the church. I watched the temple being you know, torn to the ground. I watched all my friends die for, for this, and I watched as God was faithful through it all. And he says, you know what? I'm about to write a letter, and you know what I'm going to write in that letter? I'm going to write these words. For this is how God loved the world. 
that he gave his one and only son so that everyone, not, it's not just, not just us, it was everyone. That means you this morning and me, anyone who believes, anyone who simply trusts in him. That's their side of the deal. If I will just trust in him that it's all been done for me. He says, they won't perish. They won't be lost to God. They will have eternal life. Maybe you ask Peter, Peter, you know, is that really how it is? And Peter would say, well, you remember that day when we were out fishing and Jesus came up and he's talking. He asked to sit in my boat. And then he's like, Peter, go out and cast your nets. And I'm like, you're a carpenter. You don't know anything about fishing. It's the middle of the day. We ain't catching nothing. He says, but, but because you said it, I'll go do it. And he says, he threw the nets out and there was tons of fish that came in the boat. And he says, I realized in that moment that this man was somebody other than me. He's like, Jesus, get away from me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinful. I don't belong with you. And I remember his words to me. He said, you know what, Peter? I, I know that. I know that you think that, but I'm asking you to come follow me anyway. I didn't have to get it all together. He just simply said, would you come follow me? Would you trust me? Would you follow me? Would you trust that the new covenant is enough for you? And would you follow me in response? And I think Jesus would say the same thing to me and to you this morning. He's like, I know you. I know you sitting in this seat this morning. I, I know all of the stuff that you didn't do. I know all the stuff you, you, you know, that you should have done and didn't do. I know all the stuff that you did. I know that you, you know, made promises you couldn't keep. I know that you broke your own rules. You couldn't even keep your own rules. I know you broke mine. But that is all taken care of. That is all washed away in this new covenant. If you would simply trust me and follow me. Would you trust me? Would you follow me? I paid the price for it all. I did it for you. Would you trust me? And for some, it's like, oh, that just sounds too good to be true. There's got to be something else. And he would just say, your perfect heavenly father is not like everybody else. This offer is not like every other offer. So ask the band to come up. Maybe you think you've done too much for God to forgive you. Or that you've got to try and get your life cleaned up a little bit first. There's a man who lived in the first century who felt the same way. He was, uh, he was responsible for the mass murder of a certain group of people. His hands, he may have kept his own hands clean, but he organized the murders of hundreds and thousands of individuals. Simply because he hated the way they lived. He thought that his hatred for them was justification for the fact that he was killing them. And this, this man, at one point, realized he needed a savior. Realized that the life that he was living was not the way that he should be living it. And you know, his thoughts, man, I've done way too much wrong. I've murdered people. This man would write a letter to some people living in Rome. And he would write these words to them. He says, well... That God showed his love for me, that while I was a sinner, not just a sinner, the chief of sinners, that Christ died for me. While I was still stuck in sin, before I had done anything, he did it for me. That is what we're about to celebrate with taking communion this morning. I'd encourage, you know, every one of you, you can take this, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but as the musicians are playing, allow the words just to sink in. I'll ask the ushers to hand out communion, but... It isn't about you as much as it's what he did for you. And he's asking you to simply trust in that this morning.
His disciples sat around that table that night. They didn't realize the truth of these words. 
never expecting that their friend was going to die that very night. That a new covenant, which they could barely wrap their minds around at that table, would become the thing that absolutely changed their lives. And not only that night for those disciples, but today for people here in this place. Jesus said, I, wanna, I want you to do something. I want you to take bread and do this in remembrance of me. And, you know, they, they would have thought, you know, it's changing everything. And we're supposed to remember you. We're supposed to remember your death. You haven't even died yet. They didn't know until later. And I'm convinced that Jesus didn't just give this to them to remember his death. Because I, I know that if it was you and me who watched our friend hang on a cross, we would never forget that moment. This week I watched somebody doing drywall at my house put the screw right through the drywall and through his finger and have to cut the pieces of metal away and watch him as he unscrewed it out of his finger and out of his nail. And I, I woke up that night like just wincing just throughout the night, just that thought, that image in my mind. I think of that incredible pain is it's still nothing compared to what Jesus did for me and what he, Jesus did for you. The incredible incredible sacrifice that he went through for us. Those people would never forget it, but I'm convinced that we sometimes take it for granted as to what he really went through for us. And so he said, take this bread, because my body is going to be broken for you. Put your name in that place. He hung there for you. For you. And he said, take this and do this every time you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for us, for me. Thank you that you did it all, because I couldn't. I couldn't. Thank you that we can simply receive your incredible sacrifice made for us. And some wonder, can I take it? You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning you're like, I haven't done the classes to take communion, or, you know, is that really the body of Jesus? Or you're, you've got questions. Can I, can I just simply tell you this? That when Jesus was sitting talking to his disciples, he wasn't like, hey, you, you know, you got to take a class to, to, to do this, you know, or this is going to somehow magically turn into my body once you eat it or whatever. And maybe you're here this morning like, you know, I've heard that if you eat it unworthily, you know, you're going to get sick and die. And so I, I don't want to, I don't know if I should or shouldn't do this. Can I tell you that this morning is just one of two things? It's either an act or it's a snack. For those of you who realize and put, have put your trust in Jesus, then this normal bread and this normal wine is something powerful for you because it reminds you of what Jesus has done for you, really. If you don't believe that, it's simply just a snack. It's just bread from Sobeys and it's just regular grape juice. That's all that it is. But it's amazing that God can take something simple and turn it into something powerful. And I've seen God do the same thing with lives. Take just normal lives, normal everyday things, and turn them into something powerful. And that's you as well. Because what we're about to celebrate here in the end is not just for you. It's not just for me. It is for our friends and it is for our neighbors. The chance that they might know that God really did it all for them. They're so used to hearing that religion is something they've got to do, that they've got to keep some rules, or they've got to, that we just need to just break out of that and allow people to know that forgiveness has been paid for. God's got an open door for them into relationship with him because of what he did. And he said it to them that night. He said, this is the, this is the cup, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's all on me, and I did it for you.
I don't know about you, but to think that I've been forgiven, that those songs we sing, that I am free, free forever, I'm free. That there is an eternity in hell that I don't have to go to because of what he did for me. Jesus, we honor you this morning as we take this in remembrance of the amazing sacrifice you made for us and we gratefully receive it in your name. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your freedom. Thank you for the peace, the hope, the love, the joy that you've poured in our lives as a result. I pray, Father, as we go from this place that we would realize is even as we've eaten this bread and drink this cup, that we realize the same thing, that you are in us, that you are in us, that wherever we go, that people might see you, that might see your freedom, might see your hope, might see your love and may experience your salvation. In your name I pray, amen.